memories of the armistice, Patton meeting MacArthur, and the horrifying tale of the Sultana in this Veterans Day episode of The Barstool Historian. From New York, New York, and Geneva, Illinois, it's the Barstool Historian Podcast, the podcast for people who love history. Uh, I'm sitting in the Lion's Arms Tavern once again with Tim in the New York side. Hello, Tim. Good evening. And with Ed in the Geneva, Illinois side. Hello, Ed. Who am I? Why am I here? (laughs) So we've let former vice presidential candidate Admiral Stockdale into the bar once again. (laughs) He... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he's he's been living on the streets. Gridlock. <laughs> well, I'm fellas, out of ammo. Well, fellas, this is today is November 10th, 2016, and you you guys remember last week when we thought like the most unreal, uh, the most unreal, unexpected event in the world was the Cubs winning the World Series. Yes. <laughs> remember how yes. extraordinary that seemed? Well, just a few days ago, we elected. The first non-politician presidential candidate uh, since Eisenhower, and uh, now we have vice—I'm sorry—now we have president-elect Donald Trump, and it feels weird to say those words, but um, anyway, we're in a new world. History is being made uh, in a big way, so. Uh, that's, that's that's the most accurate thing you could possibly say. <laughs> it's, we have no idea what's going to happen, but I'm sure it will be interesting. Uh, and I know a lot of you out there uh, feeling different feelings about this, but uh, I'll just I'll just give you this to think about. It's not 1814, and uh, there are not British redcoats coming to burn the White House. And there is penicillin. So. And there is penicillin. <laughs> that is true. That's true. Hey, you, by, by the way, how, how do you pronounce his wife's name again? Melania? Melania. Melania. Okay. I mistakenly yesterday thought she <laughs> was the first foreign-born first lady. Is that uh, not true? She, Wasn't that it Adams? Not true. Adams' yes. wife? Yes. John Quincy Adams. Was she? Met a girl in London. Mm-hmm. Really? Who was, uh, Yes. Um, so Abigail, no, not, not Abigail, no, no, John, Abby. John Quincy, John Quincy Abby. Adams's uh, wife. Yes, I forgot what her name is, and <laughs> I'm too she, lazy to look it up now. Was she like a uh, wise talking cockney? Yes, <laughs> fresh in your drink, governor. I'm the first lady, I am. Uh, the other, the other big thing is that tomorrow is uh, Veterans Day, the 11th day of the 11th month. And uh, way, way to go in into that with dignity. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. There's a big, big, big tone shift problem there. But <laughs> uh, all the same, all the same. It is, it is, it is Veterans Day, uh, as it, or as it's known uh, in other countries, Armistice Day or Remembrance Day. And uh, I thought it would be important just to remind everybody that because uh, I know a lot of people don't actually know this, including several of my coworkers. That it comes from Armistice Day of 
World War I. Uh, the armistice began at the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month. And I think it's important to remind people because there was a marketing campaign uh, over the past couple of weeks for a new World War I video game called Battlefield One. That was, uh, talk about tone deaf, <laughs> completely tone deaf. Looks, pr- looks pr- awesome, pr- by pr- the way. It looks, but. see, I feel conflicted about this. And I know I'm being a hypocrite because I was disgusted by the marketing campaign, which um, promoted a, uh, a Battlefield One hoodie with Doritos pockets. I'm not making nice. this up. And, uh, and, a, and a dope, a dope doughboy uh, helmet. Uh, a doughboy helmet and a, and a trench on fire. <laughs> <laughs> and I think Tim, you put it best uh, that you know somehow a hundred years is it's it's still too soon for Doritos pockets. Yes. <laughs> oh boy. us uh, might recall, even though it seems like a distant memory, I think it was the second debate, although this came up I think more than once, Trump surprisingly invoked the names of MacArthur and Patton, uh, which I never thought I'd hear uh, those names invoked during a modern presidential debate about uh, current theaters of war, such as the Battle of Mosul, but uh, he did invoke their names, and I was, I, I, I kind of perked up just hearing the names, even though it was, it was an odd reference. Um, and of course, you think of George C. Scott and Gregory Peck as well. Um, <laughs> uh, but n- nevertheless, it, it made me think... Uh, the election and Veterans Day together are tied in with these two figures, I thought, I wonder if MacArthur and Patton ever met on the battlefield. And in fact, they did. There was a meeting uh, on September 12th, 1918, the Battle of San Miel, hmm. uh, in which, which is a, a famous battle uh, because it's the first battle in which the United States Army in World War I fought on its own with its own generals leading the, the charge. Uh, they were not integrated with the European forces uh, during this battle. And San Miel was a very important battle because the American forces, under the leadership of Pershing, Brigadier General MacArthur for the 42nd Rainbow Division and Patton for the 327th Tank Division uh, were charged with securing a bulge uh, in the Allied lines that was held by the Germans for some four years. And Patton's Tank Division was charged with giving support to MacArthur's uh, 42nd Rainbow Division, and both of these gentlemen, Lieutenant Colonel Patton and Brigadier General MacArthur, were at different ends of the battlefield geographically, 
they came down to view the positions and at that moment there was a massive German bombardment which lasted for five hours and most people hit the ground but uh, Patton saw this figure on a hill coming uh, out of the woods and he moved toward the figure and it was MacArthur and while the bombs were bursting in air and people were terrified these two gentlemen held a very civil conversation with each other <laughs> and people were completely astounded by their courage um, and according to Patton's account he says uh, I met General MacArthur commanding a brigade he was walking about I joined him and the creeping barrage came along toward us but it was very thin and not dangerous I think each one wanted to leave but each hated to say so so we <laughs> let it come over us we stood and talked but neither was much interested in what the other said as we could not get our minds off the shells <laughs> Uh, Patton wrote in this uh, six-page entry in his diary. And um, I thought it was a very interesting moment in history. Uh, the uh, U.S. forces went on to win that battle, and that battle gave way to the famous uh, Battle of, of the Argonne Forest, in which uh, my Uncle Joe was wounded uh, and he died uh, from complications from, from uh, that injury many years later w when he was home. I believe he was in his 50s. He had some shrapnel uh, that was permanently lodged uh, from that battle. And uh, he died of complications from that. Uncle Joe. Uncle? Great, Great uncle. uncle. My grandfather's brother. Your grandfather's brother in World War I. So he must have been much older, huh? That's yes, still... he was. Uh, I, I, I have to say, I, I hear that, and we're talking about Donald Trump, and I can't think of a more Trumpian pair than uh, MacArthur and Patton. I really can't. And I think of my old uh, professor, Stephen Ambrose, at Wisconsin, and what he would say about, the, about this pair. And I, I think it'd be something kind of like this. MacArthur. An asshole. With no talent. Patton, an asshole with talent. Both of them are assholes. So, something like that. While dragging an unfiltered camel. Yeah. No, I mean, no, I mean, hey, Patton was good, but both of them were like egomaniacs, and uh, MacArthur's uh, rep is way in front of what he actually did, in my opinion. But, but MacArthur, what a voice. Oh yeah. yeah, he yeah, certainly had away. a he certainly had a flair for the dramatic. Yes, indeed. One of the most popular barrack ballads of that day, which proclaimed most proudly that old soldiers never die; they just fade away. Like the old soldier of that ballad, I now close my military career and just fade away. Veterans Day and uh, thinking about untold uh, stories from history um, about veterans 
of the United States and uh, its wars. Uh, I came upon uh, a tale, it's not wide known, and it's the tragic tale of the Sultana. It is the story of the biggest tragedy uh, in American history that you are not likely to hear about. And unfortunately, it happened to a lot of veterans, and that's why I'm uh, telling the story on Veterans Day. So it is April 1865. The war has just ended. Abraham Lincoln has just been assassinated, and his assassin, John Wilkes Booth, is still on the loose. Meanwhile, in the South, uh, pr prisoners of war are being released and from notorious prisons like Andersonville coming out skeletons. The Union had an issue how to get these poor men back to the Union. They did not have the facilities to uh, recuperate in the South. I mean, the South was, aside from, you know, Nashville and some of the earlier taken cities, a, a burning ruin. So they decided the best thing in the Deep South was to take them back to the Union the only logistical way they could, and that was to get them to the Mississippi and take them up the Mississippi to the first place that had a, was a railhead to the rest of the Union. And that was Cairo, looks like Cairo, Illinois, on uh, the Mississippi, the very most southern part of Illinois. So, how to do this? Well, there, are a lot of, there were still a lot of steamships on the Mississippi. And since the Union had uh, taken New Orleans and uh, divided the Confederacy, they had still been plying their trade. Uh, so they had came up with the idea, well, we will pay these riverboat captains $5 for every enlisted man and $10 for each officer that they take uh, to Cairo from Vicksburg. So that's a that's a huge bounty and again I don't want to get into the you know present cost of old money but it was a lot of money per soldier just to take him on a three or four day voyage up to, to Cairo in, in uh, Vicksburg at the time there was a steamship the Sultana and it was a rather new steamship it was only commissioned in 1863 and it's rather young captain was proud of it. It was a very big steamship, even for the, its day. Four boilers could go pretty fast and carry a lot of passengers, almost 400. But the, the cap and, captain and owner, one J. Cass Mason, was in some financial difficulty. I mean, the Civil War was not exactly good for cotton uh, transportation from uh, St. Louis to, or sorry, New Orleans to St. Louis or vice versa. So he decided, well, I, I can get my share of Union troops or I could bribe some of the, the officers to load up more on my ship. And he put some effective bribes in because, as I said, this is a ship with a uh, capacity of about 400 people, and they packed them on, and packed them on, and packed them on, and 
again, these are skeletons uh, for the most part. Uh, witnesses uh, describe uh, people having to hold each other in threes and fours. They were just so weak to get on, but they were whooping and they were singing and they were just glad as hell after years in, in captivity in the South to be going home. In all, over 2,400 soldiers packed on to this ship meant for 400. But Jeez. he wasn't done because on further 100 civilians bought passage and he decided to take some cargo and there was 80 crew members. So, ready to go, but there was one little problem. One of the four boilers had not been functioning and when they looked at it in port, they <laughs> and this can't be good for a boiler on a steamship, a bulge had developed in it. Well, they gave him the unfortunate news. It would probably be two or three days for them to repair, repair this boiler. Well, two or three days, he just bribed these officers, and if these soldiers just stayed on his ship and they weren't leaving, some of them might have thought, well, this is going to make me look bad, and started pulling soldiers off and putting them on other ships. I mean, he was the biggest game in town at that moment, but any day, another two, three, four steamships might come into port, ready to profit. So, instead, he had a... Um, plate welded onto the bulge, quote-unquote, and took off. And I'm sure you can understand smooth sailing was not ahead for the Sultana. They made a brief stop in Helena, Arkansas. Um, and this is important because um, there was actually a photographer on the, on the bank, and he took a photograph, and we will put it on our website. Uh, but you can see how packed the ship was. And that also almost led to the first disaster. So many uh, troops, even these, the, the, the weakened uh, prisoners, former prisoners of war, uh, recognized that there was a photographer that they all wanted to crowd on the uh, shoreside side and almost uh, flipped the boat over or at least uh, tumbled into the water until the officers on board restored some discipline. But you can see the, the photograph, and it is nuts. Again, you l look at the size of the ship, and there were almost 3,000 people on it. It's hard to believe. But they didn't flip over, and they kept on going. And that night, they made it to Memphis, at uh, really early in the morning, midnight, uh, 1 a.m., something like that. Uh, and they only stopped a couple hours to take some more fuel on um, and <laughs> disload their cargo, which was wine, um, of all things, uh, and set out again. And, again, these soldiers are on... They're, they're not in berths. They are literally shoulder to shoulder on the decks laying down there everywhere on every deck under over everywhere you could find a find space so i'm assuming you're going to expect this overcrowding and everything you know that they're going to be a uh, a sinking of some sort due to the overcrowding now uh three of the boilers exploded 
And uh, from what people can have seen, three of the four boilers exploded. All but the one that was patched. They exploded at 2 a.m., seven miles north of Memphis, and instantly killed hundreds of soldiers. Burning debris was everywhere, lighting the ship on fire. I, I, I can hardly... Good listeners, you don't need me to tell you this, um, but there was only one lifeboat and 25 life belts on the entire ship. Uh, instantly, the people left alive and non-scalding or burning realized that they were in the middle of the Mississippi, and the Mississippi is an extremely, extremely wide river at this point. Um, they had to they had to jump in the in in the river to to get away, and they were not close to shore. The Mississippi, being an extremely uh, hard river to navigate, there is no boat captain even now that is going to be near the shore. So they were right in the middle. So thousands of people jumped or dropped off this this, uh, inferno in the middle of the Mississippi River. Um, The people that couldn't, I guess hundreds, not thousands, sorry. The people that couldn't, uh, too weak, burned to death uh, on the ship. When I read this story first, I, I, I guess I was too used to Hollywood movies. I really expected that the uh, captain that did all this was going to be the first one in the lifeboat and plop in the water and uh, get out of there, and it'd be a huge scandal. I have to say this for J. Cass Mason. According to all accounts, he rushed out of the burning uh, bridge to hand out chairs to survivors, doors, uh, anything that would float and urge them to jump off the ship. And he ended up dying and going down with the ship and trying to get uh, people off. Unfortunately, there were several women aboard uh, the ship. And uh, there's a story of uh, soldiers uh, unable to swim, jumping in the water, clinging to the side, and a woman... Uh, on deck leaning over and telling them they needed to be calm and they couldn't they needed to uh grab the ropes on the side of the uh, side of the deck and they shouldn't yell or scream because they would get panicked and the uh, witnesses said that she talked to them and uh the group of uh, uh soldiers below until order was sort of restored and and uh, people were not clawing at each other and they encouraged her to jump down and she said she could not she was in a huge skirt and she could not swim and she was afraid that she would panic and drown one of them if she did so they literally saw her essentially burn to death rather than jump in the water and drown one of the other men uh, DeWitt, DeWitt Spikes was an 18-year-old Confederate uh, veteran who was traveling with his family, and uh, he was one of the hundred poor civilians that actually paid to be on this uh, uh, this uh, uh, this boat. And uh, he was uh, on deck when the explosion came. He was thrown off 
And, and you got to understand, the Mississippi at this time was basically a freeway, like a super highway. There were other ships coming, and one, uh, a smaller uh, steamship came upon survivors right away. He, he was rescued from it and then proceeded to go in their lifeboat and personally saved uh, 14 Union soldiers, his former enemies, and assisted in the uh, in saving 25 others. And he understandably w- was looking for his family. Un- unfortunately, his entire family died in, in the accident. There were some villains as well. And one of the uh, women uh, who had a uh, life belt jumped into the water, one of the few life belts, and uh, sp- tried to swim over to a door which several soldiers were clinging on onto where she was repeatedly attacked by one soldier until she um and life belt we're talking like it's not gonna hold up someone it's basically gives you enough you know support to be able to swim a little bit if you don't know how to swim she found another door and another group of soldiers attacked her and tried to drive her off. And then, lo and behold, the first door came by her and uh, the group of soldiers that were attacking her no longer were on it. So she was able to be saved. James and Jesse Millsaps uh, were brothers, twin brothers, that fought the entire war together, were taken prisoner together, were on the uh, uh, boat together, and uh, were thrown into the water and... Jesse spent the entire night clinging to a log, a long log with someone on the other end, and you know how this is going to end. It wasn't until daytime that the light came up and it was his brother clinging the other side of the log. And I haven't even gotten to the most terrifying part of this because there just had to be one more thing. On board, along with the 20... Let's say 2,600 passengers was also a record-sized live alligator in a crate that they were taking north for some reason. So many of the survivors were terrified that this humongous 11-foot alligator was now in the Mississippi ready to start eating people. And a startling number of them said they were more terrified of the alligator eating them than drowning. Uh, Fortunately for them, some, (laughs) I guess, quick-thinking soul shot the alligator on on the boat to to take its crate and use as a flotation device. But the alligator was not in the water. But they were terrified of it. So the survivors had to cling onto logs, cling onto wreckage. Inevitably, some ended up floating or being able to swim to the edge of the Mississippi, which was essentially just, you know, marshland with drowned trees and whatnot. And uh, some actually managed to. Uh, climb up on the trees and had to listen to men drowning and burning all night and one person an Ohio infantryman Alexander Brown had a uh, a later uh, uh, thought when when asked about it years later about what it means to be hard up now when I hear persons talking about being hard up I think of my condition at that time up in a tree in the middle of the Mississippi River, 
A thousand miles from home, not one penny in my name, nor a pocket to put it in. And that puts a little bit perspective of being poor. I mean, the guy just survived a uh, prisoner war camp in the Confederacy where one out of every uh, four people died and survived that and is in a tree in the middle of the Mississippi. Long story short, uh, by the morning, a uh, rescue effort was fully underway uh, with all boats uh, that happened by. But bodies were everywhere of that 2,400 soldiers. uh, Over 1,800, at best guess, were killed. Uh, It's hard to even know because there wasn't uh, any good records about how many soldiers were actually aboard. Bodies were found as far south as Vicksburg months later, floating down the river. The people that survived clinging on, uh, you know, pieces of doors and and debris and whatnot in the Mississippi and and, in trees and, you know, doing whatever they could, uh, noted that it was very eerie in that there was a lot of, you know, screaming and gurgling and, you know, men dying. And then people actually started singing or just, you know, trying to keep their spirits up, you know, all along you know, that area of the river. Again, it was probably like three, four in the morning. And the people that were going to die were probably dead. And uh, so it went from just a horse scene to hearing people imitate birds that were flying over or singing, you know, hymns and, and whatnot just to, you know, keep their spirits up. Out of this... There was only one court-martial, and one of the logistics officers in Vicksburg was court-martialed and dishonorably discharged, but he had that conviction later overturned. So, for this titanic tragedy, no one was really held accountable. As I said, J. Cass Mason went down with his ship, honorably trying to save as many people as he could and trying to make up for what I only assume he knew was a horrific mistake by him. And thus ends the story of the Sultana. Until Pearl Harbor, the greatest uh, loss of life on the uh, water uh, in uh, American history uh, for the military. Ed, Ed, why is it that more people don't know about the Sultana? A couple reasons. It had the worst timing as far as publicity as you could ever think. Abraham Lincoln had just been shot. The South had just surrendered. And Booth was still on the loose when this happened. But I I think the biggest reason is the soldiers going uh, up the Mississippi on this route were primarily from uh, the Midwest, Ohio, Michigan, Indiana. And... There's an East Coast bias. I mean, in New York and Washington, D.C., this all happened in essentially Memphis, and it essentially happened in uh, the war zone. And they were also very used to seeing in in newspaper, you know, thousands and thousands of people die in Antietam or Gettysburg and 1,500 or... At the time, I think they thought it was 1,200 or 1,500 soldiers die. It sounds, sounds awful, but they'd been kind of inured by four years of hellish war. 
the military was very embarrassed by the entire thing and tried their best to sweep it under on, under the rug. It was not long until the bar of brisk and lively crew came bearing down and the captain cried, we'll see what we can do. Well, that about wraps up this Veterans Day episode, and I'd like to just quickly pay tribute to some of the ancestors of mine who served in the Union Army, two of my uh, great-grandparents, uh, or great-great-grandparents, uh, one who uh, made it through both Antietam and Gettysburg, and one of them who didn't make it out of Chattanooga. And, of course, my Uncle Hub, who uh, was shot down in Italy, who my father's named after, and my grandfather, who served in England as a doctor. And uh, I, I would, again, my, my uh, grandfather in uh, World War II, my great-grandfather in World War I, and uh, hell, my uh, ancestor, uh, my great-great-great-grandfather, William Lampson, in Battle and Bennington Revolution. He was an uh, OG. Um, and uh, most especially to my, uh, especially my classmates at um, uh, Kenan Flagler Business School at University of North Carolina, uh, many of them vets, uh, many of them still in uh, the uh, military. Happy Veterans Day, and we appreciate it. I mentioned earlier my great uncle Joe, who sustained injuries uh, and shrapnel wounds at Meuse Argonne in 1918 who died many years later of complications from those injuries. And my uncle Charlie Colombero, who is near and dear to my heart and near and dear to the hearts of many in my family, uh, who saw action in World War II in the Pacific, whose uniform hangs in my closet, a kind and gentle man who fought bravely um, and never spoke about it until the last years of his life, as you hear that um, so many times. One of the most jarring moments in my life was the Thanksgiving, a couple of years before he died, where, you know, he would sit at the table in the last couple of years of his life and just vanish into deep, almost catatonic thought. And just, he just stopped talking. And um, no one would disturb him. No one realized what was going on in his head, but he was thinking about the war. And that one Thanksgiving, he just broke the silence as everyone was eating and started to talk about uh, how he saw action 
um, and was digging. Uh, he was digging a trench, and he saw the dirt moving next to his feet, and he had suffered heat stroke and was delirious, and uh, he he was being shot at so that um, they could calibrate the mortars to where he was and where his fellow soldiers were. And uh, he stood there as the dirt moved away from his feet, as the bullets <laughs> were flying overhead and did nothing about it. And he, he just broke the silence of this meal and started telling us about, about uh, the, th these moments and the gunfire. And he was mimicking the sounds of the, of the uh, machine guns and... We had never seen him so animated, and frankly, we all knew he fought in the war, but never associated with him with the war until that moment. And it was really, he died a couple of years later. It was really something. Uh, he was a great guy. I would like to say that we miss him and we honor his service. Was he in uh, the Philippines, you said? Yes, yes. So was my, my grandfather. And I have, and if you come over, I have a uh, half a Japanese sword that well, uh, he brought back from the, it, the Philippines. It's funny that you say that. Japanese officer. It's funny that you say that because my Uncle Charlie would talk about how um, they raided a fort he took a bunch of samurai swords and he sent them home which is unthinkable today of course but he sold <laughs> all of his war antiques but i oh i do have one item that's really really interesting that his daughter gave me after he died uh and he he had told me about this but never showed me this this item he said, you know, the Japanese were so ahead of their time. He said, uh, they had flashlights that could operate without batteries. And they operated based on kinetic energy. And he was explaining the awe that the, sol that the U.S. soldiers had at these devices that they had invented. And after he died... Um, his daughter Susan gave me this flashlight that he had talked about, and it's it's a small flashlight that is that has a cord attached to a box that's in um, a, a, a green canvas, and it has a crank, and the the shaft of the flashlight is encased in wood, and it has Japanese. Uh, engraving in it and the, and the the uh, the light has a, a red lens over it and you know I had heard him talk about this I never knew that he had taken he, he had brought one home I remember you telling me about the flashlight ages ago but I didn't know you actually were given it yeah she presented me with this thing and I I, I welled up because I I had no idea that he had it and uh, for all of you um, this Veterans Day, just just keep this in mind. That that's what this day is about. It's not about the mattress sales. It's not about the car sales. <laughs> it's about this. And to all of those who serve in the military and the armed forces, to those 
who are serving overseas and to those who have died in service to our great country. We at Barstool pay tribute to you all. Well, a bit of self-serving plugs here. You can find us on iTunes. Please rate us there. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at thebshistorian.com and on Facebook at facebook.com slash barstoolhistorian. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>